0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Camera Books Podcast, Above and Beyond. So on this episode, do something a little bit different, special episode where I interview author Dave McCune. And so Dave um, recently published a book called The Self-Evolved Leader, and uh, I had the opportunity to read through the book before we met, and we hit on some really important topics, important leadership topics. That will ultimately, you know, the thing that I really liked about the book is it will ultimately give you practical ideas that you can use and bring to work tomorrow in order to find and build more effective leaders strategies like You know, and I know this will sound pretty simple, but letting go and giving your team more to work on, creating shared vision, ideas about, you know, didn't quite say it this way, but putting your phone down, creating, creating a path of uh, a shared accountability in the organization. So Dave is a wealth of knowledge. And again, it's not just a bunch of theoretical kind of big, big idea stuff. His book and his ideas are extremely practical things that you can go apply to your team right now in your organization to help your organization better. So I really appreciated uh, Dave spending some time with me today and learning a little bit more about his book, a little bit l- little bit more about his leadership philosophy. And I'm convinced that uh, what some of the things that he said in our conversation, certainly some of the things you wrote in his book, will be helpful to you and what you're trying to accomplish on your t- teams and leading your teams. If you want to know more about Cameron Brooks, if you want to know a little bit more about who we are and what we do, You can find a ton of information on us at our website, Cameron-Brooks.com. Posts a lot of media and content specifically tailored to the military officer, the JMO, who is considering a transition, looking at options, considering corporate America and other things. And so if you want to know more about us, check out a little bit more of our content on our website. If you want to have a dialogue about your options, if you want to just kind of talk through the future and what might be as it relates to a potential transition let me know i'd be glad to engage you you can reach me directly at my email address it's pete at cameron-brooks.com or you can reach me here in the office telephone number 210-874-1500 all right well without further ado here's my conversation with dave all right dave thanks so much for joining the podcast i appreciate some of your time today thank you for
1: having me pete i'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to it as well. You know, I we we have the the honor of interviewing a lot of our alumni on the preponderance for most of our podcasts. It's a it's a rare and special treat to be able to bring someone an an expert in leadership, an author in leadership, and as I mentioned before, I hit the record button. I finished your book, The Self-Evolved Leader, and really appreciated a lot of the practical nature of the book and the way that it's written. So maybe you could just start us off. Can you tell us a little little bit about you, Dave? Who are you? And a little bit about your background and then launch us into your book. Tell us a little bit more about the self-evolved leader.
1: Sure, H- happy to. So um, Dave McKeown, I'm from Northern Ireland originally Now I live in southern, sunny Southern California and I've spelt, spent essentially my entire career working with leaders and leadership teams to help them elevate their focus, develop their people, and and get more done. Um, I I work almost exclusively in fast-growing organizations, um, but not all the time, Um, but where my focus in the work that I do is really helping leaders uh, understand their role in not only developing themselves as a leader, but ensuring that they're developing the people underneath them. And after about 10 years of doing that, uh, I I wanted to essentially put my thoughts down on paper so that Mm -hmm. a leader at any level of an organization, whether they're sat in one of my workshops or listening to one of my keynotes or not, has the opportunity to just pick up some real practical um, perspectives and exercises that they can put in place for both them and their team to become a more effective leader.
0: That was one of the things you and I were talking about. The thing I love about your book is it's it's, it's there are some excellent ideas and some good strategy and big ideas in there, but there's also some very tangible go-to-work today. And, as a matter of fact, starting with Chapter 11, you provide some excellent tools and resources for people to immediately go and um, apply what you're teaching, and so just a lot of practical things. And, and I think that's where I'd like for this conversation to go. I'd like for people to hear some of the – the practical things that uh, that you've talked about in the book. So the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of heroic leadership and ultimately how to facilitate team flow. One of the things that I constantly hear from military officers when we're working on interviewing and making the transition from the military to corporate America, I ask, hey, what's, a, what's one of your weaknesses? And, and you know, most of the time, you know, if you were to ask someone a weakness or Google, hey, common weakness answers, you'd hear, you know, work-life balance, or I try too hard, or some one of these kind of trite ideas. But one of the things a military officer always says, or almost always says, is, you know, I, one of my weaknesses is delegation. It's hard for me to let go. It's hard for me to 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 not have my hands on every single thing that's going on in the organization because I'm afraid. I don't think they take it to the to this to the extreme, but they say Generally, because I'm afraid if I do let things go, things will crash, and we just can't afford that around here. So, as soon as I read that in your book about heroic leadership and ultimately facilitating team flow, that's immediately where my mind went. So, can you can you share with us a little bit about what you were trying to convey and some ideas about how to perhaps get away from that in the workplace? Sure, ha- sure, happy to. And you know, one of
1: the interesting things is that 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 dynamic isn't just exclusive to the military, it it happens in leadership across all types of organizations, for-profit, non-profit, and and the notion of heroic leadership uh, is essentially that in a world where everything is urgent and needs to get attended to now, it is more effective and efficient for me as the leader to either just tell my team what to do or worse still to step in and save the day myself And it it comes from a place where it's kind of obvious whenever you think about it, but we've essentially been brought up through our lives and been rewarded and promoted on our ability to lead through acts of heroism. So even just starting in school, you get rewarded for knowing the answer. And so we get trained over time that that's what success looks like. And even... Uh, in the first few uh, jobs or careers or promotions that we get, it's usually centered around our ability to do our job functionally. Mm-hmm. The problem is at some point that becomes a liability um because, and it happens as a liability for both you and your team. Over time, if you're constantly saving the day or even just telling your people what to do, they develop what I call learned helplessness, which is essentially... Mm-hmm. um it, if 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 you're gonna step in and say the day for me, I'm just gonna stop thinking for myself and I'll just say, hey boss, I've got a problem. What you want me to do? Because it's that's just gonna be the quickest route to getting it done. Um, but over time, then that builds deep disempowerment in me. And then for you as the leader, you become the bottleneck. And so you become more frustrated and you're looking at your team thinking, gosh, why doesn't anybody take ownership, take accountability, push their own job forward? Why am I the one left doing it? And the answer is, well, take a look in the mirror because you're probably half of the (laughs) problem. And so the dynamic happens in organizations over and over and over again. And I call it the cycle of mediocrity because it's not that we're not doing good work, it's not that we're doing bad work necessarily. It's just that we're not doing our best work and our people aren't developing and we are more stressed and, and, and we are more likely to lead to burnout. And so the whole um, behavioral shift that underpins the book and in, and ultimately is this movement away from heroic leadership towards self-evolved leadership really is all about getting to the core of understanding that you can't scale your efforts as a leader if you're the hero. You can't scale the outputs of your team. You can't scale what your organization is going to achieve. Um, and so I try to reframe what leadership should be about, which is not about saving the day, but actually about helping your teams develop. And to your point, facilitating team flow is one of the key disciplines of that. Uh, and and at its root is just becoming a better delegator and understanding that the 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 myths that we tell ourselves about delegation are just that they're myths. They're 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 not really the truth. And those myths are typically um, they won't do it as well as I will. I'll have to step mm-hmm. in and save the day anyway, or I'll just get it done faster than them. They're all mm-hmm. grounded in our ego rather than actual truths, and, and so we've got to find a way to move away from that
0: there's a, there's a quote in your book, chapter seven, it's under facilitate people. It says aim to delegate everything except those things that only you can bring value to, which I think is super helpful. And it it speaks to your last point, because again, we want to jump in and get our hands on everything and save the day. So, but my question is, and, and this may be too broad or too general, but how does one do that? If, you're, if I'm aiming to delegate everything you said for those things that only can bring, that I can bring value to, speak to that for a moment. Like what's a, what's a practical thing that someone can wrap their arms around and say, okay, I'm taking this to work with me. I'm going to go do this when I get to work tomorrow.
1: Just before I get to the practical, I, I just want to layer in one slightly more philosophical thing. Uh, and the reason Please. for that is this, for any behavior change to last, or to take in our lives, it has to be grounded in a perspective shift and a mindset shift. Otherwise it just Mm -hmm. doesn't sit, you know, and I'm sure you're, you know, any, any new habit or behavior that you try to develop, unless you actually change fundamentally how, what you believe to be true about whatever it is that you're trying to fix, it it won't, it won't shift. So the first thing that we've got to do is make a mindset shift away from that notion of heroic leadership towards self-evolved leadership. And the root of that is what I call the um, self-evolved leaders mantra, um, and which is this my, my focus as a leader is, is, is to help my team achieve our shared goals and in doing so to become the best version of themselves there are two key point, points of that we're going to achieve our shared goals and my team is going to develop whilst we do that mm-hmm. the reason why that's so important is there's no room for heroic leadership in that there's no room for you to save the day because if you do step in and save the day and refuse to the delegate then your people aren't going to develop so if we can make that perspective shift, then it makes the it makes the more practical behavior, behavioral shifts a lot easier to do. Um, real simple thing you can do is just take out your to-do list right now take a look at it. Go down each item and ask yourself this question. For each item that I'm looking at, is there somebody on my team who, if I give this to them, even if they needed a little bit of advice, guidance, and support, could theoretically do this task? If the answer is yes, Then delegate it out, find a way to delegate it out. And you should then get to the point, the quote that you um, shared there, where you're looking at cutting your to do list down to about 20 or 25% of what it was at. Because here's the thing in that 20 or 25%, those things that truly are the things that only you can do, that's where you add real value to your organization. You don't add value to your organization in doing those those pesky little things that you, you would love to give to somebody, but you just didn't don't think that they would be able to do it. You, you're not adding any value in doing that. And so just making that shift towards focusing on that top 20% of things that really only you can do, that's where then you'll add value, your people will grow and develop, and um, your career will grow as a result of it. Now, does that mean that if you're going to start delegating out things to your team that you just throw them into the ether and hope that they catch them? No, there's got to be a process that you go through in doing that. But it means making that commitment to spend a little bit more time with them to show them what it is that you're hoping to to achieve and and getting them to understand the task or the activity or the project at hand so that they can then go and, and do a good job. If you spend a little bit of time up front in doing that, then you will just exponentially increase the the um, the time that you've invested in there uh, out the back end.
0: I was working on a task this morning. As a matter of fact, I, I inherited this task not too long ago. As we had a little changeover in our organization, and uh, you know, people were just picking up things that this person was responsible for. And even as you said, you know, look at your to do list, which is kind of across the room in another room right now. But I'm thinking to myself, I already know like two things immediately. I need to go right after we finish this call and engage in some of that. So, really helpful. Um, I I want to get on this idea for a moment, if I may, because you 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 talked about you know shifting your mindset and kind of launched into the mantra that you that you list in your book. And I definitely want to repeat that before we get there, though. I want to ask you. You you mentioned Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And there's a there's a quote in your book that I, that really stuck out to me. It says, no amount of training or coaching will coaching will enable your evolution unless uh, unless and until you're willing to engage in the introspection required, to hard work needed to navigate the journey. And I think that's so vital to what we talk a lot about here at Cameron Brooks in terms of. And growth mindset, and really investing in yourself. And the reason I think that's so important is because the people who with whom we partner are making a choice to leave the military, right, government, DOD, and get into corporate America, which is, which is a strong mm-hmm. pivot, David. It's not like, hey, I'm going to work for the government. Now I'm going to work for business. There may be some functional overlap, but it's a big pivot. So we spend so much time, energy, and effort encouraging and 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 sharing how to work on development relative to making the switch. And one of the things I find is the busyness of life and probably prioritization, at least to a degree, tends to get in the way. In your experience, yeah. how what what are things that you say to people and and again you can't make them. You're not gonna, we're not going we're not going to force someone and twist their arm, but what can what do you say to people to to help them kind of move the rock if you will and get, build some momentum toward um toward self-development if you will.
1: Um I I and I think you're right that is that you you're not going to convince everybody that this is the right thing to do. My my perspective is that there is value in being an effective leader simply in just being an effective leader, not necessarily because you're going to make more sales or because your organization's going to grow or even necessarily that you're going to have a greater impact on the community around you. Those are results of great leadership, but, but they shouldn't be the driving force and the driving factor. There, there is value and, and great principle in saying to yourself I am in a career path that calls me to be a good leader I therefore want to develop that even if nothing comes as a result of it and so if you can get people bought into that perspective then 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 the rest kind of falls out um out the back end I I think that Mm. we also have to be really um mindful of the fact that depending on what organization you work for you may not have a clear path to develop those mindsets and, and skill set and behaviors that you want as a leader. And in fact, in a lot of organizations in corporate America, it doesn't exist. We put people into leadership positions all the time and don't give them the training they need to succeed. And I think that we've got to shift that perspective and rather than wait for our organizations to develop us, we've got to push for that growth. We've got to push for that mindset shift. And, and that's, it's what underpins a self-evolved leader is this knowledge and understanding that I'm the only one responsible for my growth and development. Sure. There might be tools and resources in my organization and absolutely go make use of them, but you should be the one that's in control of that journey.
0: You know, I think that, um, and, and it, it, to your point, we're, we're not, again, we're not twisting anyone's arms, but I think sometimes self, de- not sometimes I think self-development is work. It's hard. It's uh, it requires thought. It requires discipline and, and I think sometimes, you know, at the end of a long day when we've been fighting on all the battles that we fight at work, uh, it's just, you know, it's time to relax and not get after it. What are your thoughts there? I, I,
1: you're you're bang on. And I think the, the problem comes if, if our, in, in anything that we're trying to do, but, but specifically in the workplace, if all we're doing is getting to the end of the day and winning the day, mm that's that's over the long term that's exhausting because you got to get up the next day and win that day and then get up the next day and win that day and it's, it's sort of like to what ends. and and i think that great leaders carve out the time in their schedule whether it's in during work hours or after work hours to allow their focus to elevate towards the medium and the long term a great leader is not focused all the time on the day-to-day. Sometimes they have to be, sometimes it's required Mm -hmm. of them, but great leaders know how to kind of um, elevate or move up that vision to the medium and long term. So not just what do we need to achieve today, but what do we need to get done this Mm -hmm. month, this quarter, perhaps even this year. And, And the thing is, there's a gravitational pull that gets us sucked in the day-to-day that's all grounded mm-hmm. in all of these key shifts that we're making, which is, if I'm not here to save for the day for my team, it's all going to fall to pot, to
0: mm-hmm. so,
1: which the answer mm-hmm. is, sure, well, then you're going to spend every day just trying to win the day. Find a way mm-hmm. to begin to think about the medium and long-term development of your people and direction of your team, and you'll start to see that things just, just get a little easier for you. There's a little bit more flow in there for you
0: and your team. This might be a smaller point, but I, but it's a, it's a word and an, a thought and an idea that I talk about when I'm coaching in certain ways to answer interview questions, but this idea of vulnerability. And in your book, you say you can't pursue lifelong learning without vulnerability. What did you mean by that?
1: Um, there are some older models of leadership that are still prevalent in our organizations today, of which we're essentially... Um, kind of picking at the surface, most of those models of leadership are grounded in certainty. So we, we used to believe, or we still do, the, we used to teach uh, across the board that a leader was somebody at the front who said, I know where we're going, follow me, we'll, we'll get there together. Um, I, I just don't think that works in our world today because there are, it's too complex, there are too many variables, there are too many things that change underneath us um, at a rapid pace. And so where I think effective leadership is moving towards is where somebody comes up and says, I am not 100% sure where we are going. Here's my best guess based on these assumptions, based on what we've seen before. What are your thoughts? What's your input? Let's um, co-create a vision of where we're going together. And and then let's find a way to set some common goals, hold each other accountable and get there um, together. And that requires vulnerability. Um, and the problem is we have, we've conflated vulnerability with weakness, which it's not. Mm-hmm. Being truly vulnerable, vulnerable is one of the greatest strengths that you can have. Coming forward and saying, "Hey, all of this great experience," and you know, talking about it in the concept of, of hiring, coming forward and saying, "Hey, all of this great experience um, uh, that that you have, all of this knowledge that you've developed, all of these skills that you've developed," saying, "They got me to a certain point of my career. I'm not sure that 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 the skills that I have will get me to the next point of my career, but I can tell you this." I know how to learn and grow and develop, and so no matter what you throw at me, I will make sure that i that that I can overcome that that's a that's that's a, a strength in being vulnerable um without mm-hmm. having to hold so tightly onto the things of the past um and, and I just think that 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 is a leadership skill we 're going to see much more, which is just this openness, this vulnerability to, to say we don't know all of the answers, but let's create a path to get there together.
0: One of the things that a lot of the hiring managers that I interact with is they're looking for JMOs. They they want people who are willing to to learn and to grow and develop. And I'm kind of bringing these two ideas together: this idea of vulnerability and this idea of of, of growth mindset and take responsibility for the development. And I think one that's a key kind of requirement, if you will, for Business leaders and hiring managers who are looking at a JMO thinking, okay, I, I love your leadership, but I recognize you don't have the, the, the work, the industry, the company experience that I would typically look for when I'm filling and hiring for this position. But what they're really wanting is they want to see people who are all in with the self-development. And one of the things I say to people all the time is not, from a vulnerability perspective, is not like, "Hey, I don't know this stuff." Like, I I try to uh, encourage people to avoid the self-deprecation of what they don't have, but I think there needs to be a, an acknowledgement in this idea of vulnerability, an acknowledgement of. I love what you said. I'm kind of parroting it back to you because it's so powerful. <laughs> it's like, like my skills have gotten me to this place, and and I, you know, when I came into my last job, for instance, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't go to school for it. I I was thrown in. I learned, I developed, I burnt the candle on both ends. I read a bunch of books. I applied a bunch of knowledge in order to help me be successful. So it's not a self-deprecation as much as it's an acknowledgement that I'm willing to grow and to learn. I don't stop learning and I don't stop developing.
1: Yeah, Marshall Goldsmith, um, great executive coach, wrote a book about 10 years ago called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's, it's just mm-hmm. that in a nutshell. I mean, and it doesn't discount what you've gone through, what you've learned and what you've you've developed. Far from it. But the lesson that you take from it, to your point is, and the lesson that you share with somebody else is, I have learned how to learn. I can take that concept, that notion, whether it's in learning how to lead in the military, whether it's in learning how to sell a product, whether it's learning how to cook or play the guitar or go surfing or uh, become an engineer. It's not about the functional thing at the end of it. It's about understanding how, how to learn new things because that growth, that development is what will take you as far as it can go, as you can go in your career. And And, you know, one of the saddest things that, I see is whenever you see an executive who's maybe in their mid 40s and they've had a good long career, maybe they've been in the workplace for 20 years, they've had a good degree of success, but you just get the sense that they're not, they're not prepared to learn anymore. They just, they're just mm-hmm. gonna ride it out for however long they, mm-hmm. they, they want. And, and that, that in and of itself is, is a bit of a tragedy because there's so much more that they could do and achieve uh, and develop in, in other people if they continue to have that growth mindset.
0: Occasionally, I'll interview someone who's been in the workplace for not not quite as long as you're describing, but uh, a Cameron Brooks alumnus, someone who helped we helped transition seven, eight, nine years ago. And th- those people, and it's easy to tell. I just w- I want to kind of kind of make a point or put an exclamation point on your point. It's really easy to tell those that are progressing quickly and well in their career, and those are the people that are continuing to make a decision to continue to learn and grow, whether that's through, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? Reading and podcasts and books and seminars and, you know, Coursera and and Khan Academy, there's a hundred ways to do it, but it's this idea of I'm not going to stop learning and growing. You mentioned mantra earlier. I want to repeat your mantra, the mantra you lay down in the book, and I want to ask you a specific question about, about teams. The mantra is my focus is to help those on my team achieve our shared goals and in doing so, to help them become the best version of themselves. And when I read that, I actually read that two or three times. and really, really just pondered that for a moment. Because I think, you know, when I go to work and when people go to work every day, they're thinking like, what are the goals? Got to hit the goals, got to hit the goals, got to hit the goals. And, and rarely is it this intentional and to help people be the best version of themselves. Not that I don't want people to be the best version of themselves. I absolutely do. But, you know, we got goals to hit here, folks. So, you know, kind of try to be your best person, but let's hit the goal. Tell me why that is such a balanced approach to leadership, as you describe it in the book.
1: For me, that second part is in there. And it's, it's important and necessary, because it's it's not enough to just hit your goals if your team isn't growing and developing. That that to me is not good leadership. That's, that's heroic leadership because mm-hmm. if you've got goals and even if they're shared goals, but you're just trampling all over your team to to get there to make sure you, to haul your team over the line, they're going to, you know, at some point they may not use these words, but they're going to essentially point to you and say, well, what what is even my value and my purpose if you're just going to just pull us over the line consistently whereas if you take that perspective it it means that you build in the time needed to work through a lot of the disciplines that we've been talking about in in the book and so if you're wanting to be a better delegator understanding that part of your role as a leader is developing your people then it, that that that, that that helps you use that as a tool whenever you're kind of pushed to your most stress point and you do want to just do everything yourself. It, it allows you or helps you take that pause, take that moment to really evaluate your intention in that in that moment. Um, and, and so that's why it's important to me. I think it, it builds, I, I think that there's value in being a good leader around developing your people and it builds a good culture um, and just ultimately adds up to a more well-rounded legacy uh, for you as a leader? There's
0: two more parts that I really want to kind of dig into. One that, that struck me probably because I have uh, three teenage children, one of one of them who's in college, two, the other two are in high school. And they are, as I'm sure you well know, because I am too, by the way, so I can't cast all the stones here, uh, permanently attached to my mobile phone. It is a fixture mm-hmm. within the end of one of my hands at all times it feels like. And in the book, you talk about reclaiming our, your attention and that we're fighting. And on page 108, you talk about fighting an addiction. Mm-hmm. Tell me why that 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 came in the book in an important part, talking about discipline and some other things. Tell me why that's a part of of what you talk about as a self evolved leader.
1: You know, you're, you're – describing the cultural aspect and setting in which we're operating, which is we've got to the stage where we have allowed anybody to interrupt us at any time in any way that they deem necessary and assign any priority on their interruption that they want. And what it does, well, a number of things. First of all, the research um, is indicating that when you're, when you're working on something, let's say it's a report or a presentation or a bit of code or whatever it is that you're doing from a functional mm-hmm. perspective, and you get interrupted, if you tend to that interruption, it takes anywhere between 15 and 20 minutes for your brain to fully revert back to the thing that you were working on to get stuck into that kind of deep flow of work. And that was fine back in the 70s and 80s when we maybe had nine or 10 interruptions a day. You I get nine mm-hmm. or 10 interruptions a minute. And so we're not when we're when we're needing to do our best work, we're not giving ourselves the headspace to do that. The second thing is, and there's a whole bunch of factors that have laid into this, the the sort of the the notion of the hustle culture and and the need to be as responsive as we are, and just this need to appear busy. I, I would push against that and say actually what you're doing, again, is you're allowing yourself to get sucked into the day-to-day and getting sucked into the weeds. And and this comes out particularly in those interface moments between you and your team, which is if you're in meetings, whether it's a group meeting or a one-on-one, and there are a bunch of devices open and people are texting, multitasking isn't leadership. It's really not. And actually, as a leader, if you can't get a, a handle on that, what you're essentially saying to whoever it is on your team is, whatever's going on on my device is way more important than my relationship with you. And I put it, there are five key disciplines that I talk about in the book. Attention management, I think, is the number one Mm -hmm. in that if you can't find a way to reclaim your attention, if you can't find a way to systemize and and processize how you deal with interruptions, then it's going to be very difficult for you to think about the long-term direction uh, of your team and development of your people. If you're just going to get stuck in that firefighting mode of the day-to-day, you're just responding to whatever that ping is. Um, and, you know, just to tie a, a bow on at what you were saying, research is starting to emerge to essentially suggest that that we are now getting addicted to it, the endorphin, little dopamine hits that we get whenever mm-hmm. our phone pings is is putting us into this negative um, feedback loop with our with our devices. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important for me, I think.
0: I know that... I know that it can simply be, well, you know, just put it down, turn, turn, the, turn the ringer off and put it in your drawer. And, and I like that idea. It's just I'm, I'm horrible at that idea. So, can, and, and you lay down some things in your book. Can you highlight uh, two or three things or maybe one or two things, whatever, some things that people can use right now to help them kind of <laughs> break the addiction, if you will, to, uh, to master our attention?
1: Sure. I think one of the things, particularly if you lead a team, uh, that you can do is to actually set up a, a, a communication protocol, which sounds more complex than it than it is. But you'd be surprised how many teams haven't clearly defined what tools they use to communicate with each other on, depending on whatever the circumstances. And so you get a mixture of emails, text messages, phone calls, IM, Slack. Um, you know, project management systems. And so what what that does is it just opens up like uh, just a, a plethora of buckets in which people can get in touch with you. I, I encourage leaders as much as possible to narrow those buckets down so that your team knows that uh, if they need you in, a, in an emergency, that's a phone call. If they need a response, you know, within, let's say, three hours, that's an IM. Or if it's something that can wait until tomorrow, that's an email it's just an example. It doesn't have to be that way. But just sitting down with your team and agreeing what platforms and, what, and what purposes you use communication can really help to do that. Mm-hmm. Second thing that I think is really um, helpful is to getting to get really ruthless at prioritization. Um, judging when something comes into you, what the urgency and the importance of it is. Uh, and then actually deferring your either your response or the output to the appropriate um, um, place. So for example, somebody pings you with a, a question that you know you could deal with in your team meeting next Thursday. Rather than actually giving the answer to this one person and needing to repeat yourself again on Thursday, saying something like "Hey, we'll talk about that on Thursday," just putting those responses into those buckets so that you're not duplicating your efforts and you're not having mm-hmm. to jump on everything that comes in. So, getting really good at, at prioritization and, and assigning where you should respond to things appropriately, I, I think can can really help.
0: This might be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I enjoyed or I remember reading a part in your book where you talk about relaxing on the the courtesy copy right didn't didn't you mention something about like you don't you know courtesy copy turns to be turns out to be more of a of a cover yourself than a true informational flow can you speak to that for yeah, a moment I mean,
1: the amount of people that are drowning in their inbox uh, and the reason that they're drowning in their inbox is because they've told everybody on their team that they want to be CC'd or BC'd in, in all communication. I mean, what a way to say to your team, mm. I don't actually trust you. Um, mm. As a as a leader, you should have the, the feedback mechanism that you need to have the information that you need, but it shouldn't be just in time unless it's the most urgent and it's, you know, at a point of escalation for, for you. Uh, and that stuff accretes over time, you know, all of a sudden, one or two people are, are, are copied in and then it's three or four or five. And then before you know it, 20 people get every email in this chain. And that is just, mm-hmm. if you think about if you think about a couple of things, one, the two minutes that it takes people to read that, coupled with what we talked about earlier, which is just this notion that it's going to take people 10 or 15 minutes to to switch back to what they were doing. That's just a colossal amount of time, not just for you as an individual, but for across the organization that's wasted. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you know, there's some themes in this conversation. Being mm-hmm. intentional about what you're doing and, and just taking a little bit more time at the front end to, to share those intentions and set up the most appropriate way to deal with that will save you in, in the long run. And and so my encouragement to you as a leader is if you feel you need to be copied on emails from your team, there's a bigger issue at hand. And it's either you don't trust them, in which case you need to really um, uh, have uh, an open, honest discussion with them, or you feel you have a fear that if you don't know all of that information, somehow you're going to be caught with your Swimming trunks uh, down whenever the uh, tide goes out, and again, you've got to deal with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Dave, I know we're 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 approaching the uh, the end of our conversation. I do want to ask you about one more topic because I think uh, it's the topic that probably and there's a lot that resonated with me in the in this book uh, in your book again, mostly because it's so practical, which I appreciate the topic that I think stuck out to me the most is toward the end of the book. And maybe this is the culmination of the conversation as well. Cause I do agree. There's been some, some consistent themes in our conversation, but it's the idea. And you talk about it in chapter 10 of your book about building shared accountability. So broadly, just let's just start here. Why is that so important to a team? This idea of shared accountability.
1: It goes to this. If, if you're the one that's responsible for holding your team accountable and only you, then again, where's the bottleneck in that, in that system? So if something happens to you, then the accountability, um, it drains off also creates I've seen it happen um, many times before, where a leader is likes to hold people uh, accountable on -on one-on-one basis, and what it does is it it creates these little pockets of information that aren't shared amongst the team, and it just it creates a it can create not always, but it can create an environment of of mistrust because there's there's not this kind of shared notion of what's happening. The goal uh, in terms of scaling your impact as a leader comes whenever you can sit in a meeting with your team and they are collectively holding each other accountable and you're there just as a peer like anybody else, but that you've got a system and a way to have discussions and make decisions as a group that, People are excited to come to you and share their successes of the last week or last month or last quarter and are eager to bring those areas where they're not quite hitting the mark because they know that there's going to be help, advice, guidance and support in the team. So you, you um, contrast that with... Uh, what often is the case? People get really scared to bring those areas mm-hmm. that they're not hitting the mark for fear of um, uh, being admonished. And and mm-hmm. where you're building a really strong team culture is that notion of I can't wait to tell you guys how I've, how I've succeeded. Can't wait to hear how you've succeeded. And I'm so eager to share this issue with you where I'm not hitting one of my metrics or goals because I know you're going to help me find a solution. You you do that and then you've built a team that will outlast you. Um, and that will um, leave an even bigger legacy than you could do on your own.
0: I have to ask you, and you just kind of share with me what, you, what you're what you comfortable sharing, but how in the world, Dave, do you do that? Because, man, could you imagine, could everyone listening to my voice imagine being in a room where your team is excited to share the goals that they've hit, maybe the shortcomings that they had this week, and to have this kind of loving support of, like, we got to do this together as opposed to, like, fiefdoms and egos and like that I can't believe that person said that, and what is wrong with them because I feel like that the second part of what I just said is so so prevalent and and what you said at least in my experience isn't as prevalent, and so how do we get there
1: uh, it's the age old question we've been talking about this um, for gosh decades now. Um, the thing with accountability is you can't start there because There's so much work that needs to be undone and then redone because of all of those cultural things that have crept in. And if you're working in a team where there is a little bit of distrust or fiefdoms or um, you know, functional barriers, you can't just get people in a room, give them a good rah-rah speech and believe they're all going <laughs> to hug each other and walk out the door feeling aligned. It's often the output of a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's why it's one of the final chapters in the book. What you've got to do is make that mindset shift away from heroic leadership starts with you, adopt that mantra that your job is going to help your people um, develop into the best version of themselves a couple of things we didn't talk about but it's in the book and folks can look at it you've got to build a shared vision with your with your team so that they're collectively bought into where you're going You've got to build an implementation rhythm, which is a series of meetings that allows them to evaluate their progress towards their annual goals and that vision. And then you've got to develop all of the dis- disciplines that we talked about, reclaiming your attention, facilitating team flow. There are a couple of more in there. When you do that and when you do it over a prolonged period of time and it'll take anywhere between 12 and 18 months to really start seeing a cultural shift, that's when you see your team really starting to cohese together. The problem is too many of us and too often we start trying to fix that end result. And like Mm -hmm. we said throughout all of this, it takes work and it takes a lot of work, but I can guarantee you that if you put in the hard work, you can get there because I've seen it happen again and again and again.
0: Yeah, Dave, what a treat. I got to tell you, I've uh, I've learned for sure in working through the book and hearing you describe it, I greatly appreciate it personally but I am, I am completely convinced that the people who invest time in listening to this podcast invest time in picking up a copy of your book and really applying these principles can get to a place where they can lead teams with shared accountability and trust and harmony that will allow the team to be successful. So I just really appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your experience. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me on, Pete.
1: Really appreciate it. It was great to talk with you.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in and listening to Dave's ideas and thoughts. I'm, I'm convinced that uh, a lot of what he talked about today, you can actually go use and apply and be a better leader in your organization. Stay tuned for another edition of the Camerabooks co- podcast. My colleague, Joel Junker, will release an episode in two weeks. Until then, take care.